and more progressive cities, like the perfect can be the enemy of the good, where they have these really grand plans where we're going to allocate all this money and, and make these beautiful facilities for people to live in. How is it that you're spending more than what a lot of people make in a, a year, year. Yeah. yeah, on each homeless person and, and you're not so solving the people. problem? Like This is an indictment on progressive governance. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, what do we have today? We got a very large show today, Ravi. Progressive cities are cracking down on their homeless populations in ways that would have been unthinkable even a few years ago. What's driving that shift? And is it actually helping to solve the homeless problem? Jeff Zucker is out at CNN, but this just in, we've got some breaking news on what really led to his departure. And the heated debate we've all been waiting for, teen vaping. But first things first, Tulsi Gabbard is catching a ton of heat after tweets this weekend warning of potential biohazards at U.S. funded labs in Ukraine. Here are the undeniable facts. There are 25 to 30 U.S. funded biolabs in Ukraine. According to the U.S. government, these biolabs are conducting research on dangerous pathogens. Ukraine is in an active war zone with widespread bombing, artillery and shelling. And these facilities even in the best of circumstances, could easily be compromised and release these deadly pathogens. Senator Mitt Romney called her out for what he referred to as treasonous lies. And what she had to say does mirror Russian propaganda in a few key respects, but the full story gets pretty murky awfully quick. So let's discuss what is going on here. What exactly is Tulsi Gabbard talking about? So Tulsi Gabbard in a recent video that she tweeted out called for a ceasefire until um, those those labs can be contained and those pathogens can be destroyed, um, citing concerns that the Russians might potentially take over and release those hazardous pathogens um, in Ukraine. And so she's gotten a lot of blowback and a lot of heat. It seems to be a pretty complex situation, but um, that's essentially what her claim was in the video. Yeah, I think what I find confusing about this is that there are, there are different claims being thrown out there. And there's one which is that there are labs that are conducting like non-military uh, biological research, yeah. research versus the claims of Tucker Carlson, who's called these biological weapons. This is not actually a story. The Pentagon's been doing it since 2005 working with Ukrainians to, quote, eliminate biological weapons left behind by the Soviets. That makes sense. But wait, 2005 was 17 years ago. How long does it take to eliminate Soviet bioweapons? 17 years seems like a long time. Russian government, who's uh, at least at some point in this invasion, has used the, the possibility of Ukraine having biological weapons as a as I wouldn't call a pretext, but like as a reason why they're there. One of the many uh, reasons. And there's a there's a worry that the Russian government is going to try to manufacture some kind of crisis where some kind of biohazard gets released, they blame it on the Ukrainians, mm -hmm. and that it only further escalates this war. I think that's part of the worry here. And I think I separate these things out. I try to separate out my massive distrust of Tulsi Gabbard from the literal words that she tweeted. And from my sense, her intentions aside, and we could talk about the fact that she went on Tucker Carlson, who I think has gone further to, to spread straight up misinformation on this, the literal words she said are, I haven't seen enough evidence to say that they're treasonous or even that they're necessarily false. No, treasonous is a strong term. I, I think Mitt Romney was a little bit 
I don't, I don't think he was correct in calling, calling her treasonous. I mean, she uses the term dangerous pathogens, deadly pathogens, saying that this is something that she's worried that the Russians, it'll go, fall into the Russians' hands. But let's just take a quick little a quick little step through how this theory became popular. So Russia's reasoning for this invasion keeps shifting. Putin never mentioned anything about Ukrainian bio labs in his initial statements as to why he was evading. Originally, Putin said Ukraine was full of Nazis and that Zelensky was a Nazi. Zelensky's Jewish. So that's kind of odd that he would say that. And when that narrative started falling apart, we then once the invasion started, there was um, activity on Twitter. The, literally the day of the invasion, there was a QAnon tweet on Twitter that started saying things about biolabs in Ukraine. There was a, a, a map, a picture posted with all these different locations of where these laboratories were. And then on March 9th, or was around the date of March 9th, Tucker Carlson then jumps to the conclusion that there were dangerous biological weapons being processed in Ukraine, that the U.S. was funding these labs. Now, according to the uh, uh, Andy Weber, who is a member of the Arms Control Association Board of Directors and a former assistant secretary of defense for nuclear, chemical and biological defense programs, he has said that there are no U.S. military run labs in Ukraine. Rather, the U.S. Department of Defense Cooperative Threat Reduction Program has provided technical support to Ukrainian ministers of health since 2005 to improve public health laboratories. So essentially, they're saying that this is not nefarious research. But Tulsa Gabbard is kind of implying that it is. Yeah, Ricky, you've looked into this claim. Where do you come down on this? Yeah, I don't think that at any point she referred to them as bioweapons, but unfortunately, I think the reality is that no matter how they were intentioned in the first place, these biological pathogens could be weaponized if they fall into the wrong hands. And that's a concern that is echoed pretty much throughout our defense and and throughout our government. Um, a pa- a Pentagon official told CBS's national security con- uh, correspondent that they're worried about biolabs. Um, the Defense Department has said that they're studying anthrax, tularemia, uh, th- and Q fever. And Victoria Newland of the State Department um, acknowledged these concerns in testimony recently. I only have a minute left. Let me ask you, um, does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. Ricky, this is where I get a little frustrated, is that it reminds me a little of the Wuhan situation in the sense that our government officials could be clear. Like my understanding of this is that Rubio was running out of time. He asked this highly important question at the end of this hearing, and it's basically a rushed explanation. And there was a similarly difficult to understand explanation from Avril Haines, who's the director of national intelligence for the United States. And there's reason to believe that our government has basically been funding mainly, if not wholly, efforts to sure up the safety of these labs. And there was a good uh, New Republic article that at least claims that this program called the Defense Threat Reduction Agency in the Pentagon is the program that's at issue here and that they even have offices in Moscow, right? So that's, and it's everything, they claim, the New Republic, that all of this is public. And so if it's true that all of this is public, it's not a cover-up, they even have offices in Moscow and all that, if that is all true, why don't we just 
explain it like that. Like if our government officials basically were as clear as the New Republic article was, I think it would go a long way in helping to diffuse this this kind of narrative. Are we also like, isn't doesn't Russia probably have these similar laboratories in, in their country? I mean, if the debate is that Ukraine has dangerous laboratories and that we need to somehow go over there and, and, and secure them and shut them down, I mean, Russia probably has the same capabilities. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the question of like Russia then manufacturing the crisis in Ukraine that they want. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think people are worried about. Oh, it doesn't seem like Tucker Carlson is worried about that. Yeah, well, well, we'll get to that. There is this claim, and I think we'll we'll look into this. I don't want to report too much on this now because it hasn't been independently verified outside of Mother Jones, but Mother Jones alleges that the Russian government is asking their news outlets to play Tucker Carlson clips on their news outlets because it serves their interests. Say, hey, here's this American prominent journalist who's backing up our Echoing claims. their claims. But we'll come back to that. And I think I, I, I hesitate to say too much about it because it's one news source yeah. that has claimed to verify it, but we'll certainly be keeping an eye on that. Yeah, and I think just one final note on that is it's important to note that Russia has already, um, before this conflict, taken over two Ukrainian labs and is not allowing Ukrainian access to it. And there is a lot of r- rumors circulating in Russia that you know there's Ukrainian bioweapons. And so if something does leak, they would blame it on the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. And so I think regardless of who's saying it, of Tucker and, and Tulsi, the concern right now that seems to be pretty immediate is that there's a potential health hazard in Ukraine for Ukrainian people, for the world at large, and whether or not these labs should be contained, I think is not really too controversial of a statement. Well, we'll have to wait for more of the research and information to come out on what exactly is happening in those labs. Progressive cities around the country are taking a harsh new approach to homelessness. Leaders are turning to more punitive measures such as clearing encampments and outlawing begging, moves that would have been politically untenable just a few years ago. Now, we want to talk about America's homeless crisis more broadly, but let's start with those initial moves. Why is this happening and why is it happening now? Uh, A number of liberal cities, some of the most liberal cities in the country have been clearing out these encampments. What exactly is going on here? Yeah, and I think it's important to step back in these stories to talk about the you know the fact that these are human beings. You know, right outside of our doors here in New York City, uh, in 2021, there are over 107,000 di- different homeless adults and children who slept in uh, the New York homeless facilities. 31,000 plus of those were children, and so I think that's a starting point. When you walk outside the doors of our offices. Within seconds, you're going to run into somebody who lives on the streets. And it's particularly heartbreaking that this involves children, right? And so where I come down on this to start with is that this is an urgent issue. It's why we're talking about it, even given the fact that there's so much in the news, is because this is what government has to be good at. We have to be good at this. And as we'll we'll get to, we're not. Yeah, I think that it's worth noting as well to put kind of a human lens on all of this. These are people that are really struggling. According to uh, data on national homelessness, about half of them are suffering from mental illness, a quarter from severe mental illness. 38% are alcoholics, 26% are drug drug addicts. And, you know, it's a really sad and unfortunate spiral that these people are experiencing. And Corey, this is, I think, the fault line in this debate and, I, and we'll get to whether it's actually a fault line, but there are different camps. There are those who believe that homelessness is due to economic factors like affordable housing and livable wages. And you could say that that's largely set of views that are espoused more on the left. And then you have uh, people more on the sort of libertarian or conservative side who tend to focus on the drug addiction and the mental health crisis. As, as Ricky just pointed out, like there's a lot of data to suggest that there, there are concentrated issues of mental health 
and drug addiction in the homeless populations. And there are reasons to believe that, that there are certain things that have happened over the past few decades to accelerate those issues, right? Absolutely. But there's also you know, very powerful data to show that there, there are also issues on the housing front. And so uh, the Joint Center for Housing Studies at Harvard found that the medium American rent payment rose 61% between 1960 and 2016, while um, the median renter's income only grew 5%. So 61% to 5%. And the Economist had a good uh, series of cover stories or a cover story right before the pandemic. And that basically showed that we're just not building new housing set in the show notes. It's staggering data. We're not building new housing. We've talked about this in, in a number of respects on the show. We have those two camps. My question is, are they mutually exclusive, these two explanations? Like, can't they all be true? Well, I think they definitely are all true. I mean, it's all a part of the puzzle of why homelessness is such a problem in this country. I lean more towards the idea that, or I should say the theory that, that drugs and mental health problems really, to me, they play a larger role. The whole thing about housing, yeah, it's very true. Los Angeles, for instance, they have terrible housing, like zoning, the way they zone there. Yeah, and it's San all Francisco single, too. Yeah, it's all for single family homes. Like they don't build up the way they do in New York. In LA, it's all spread out. Yeah, and we don't even, there's other issues here. Yeah, we don't build here either. Yeah, for we don't build reasons. here for different, different reasons, yeah. right? So there is a lack of building homes. And when you have a lack of building homes, it's gonna make homes increase in price. So obviously housing is definitely a part of it. However, this notion that, I mean, are people being priced out of homes? Certainly. I'm, there's absolutely homeless people that were priced out of homes. But the average person, and I want to be careful about how I say this, but the average person, the average family, if you're working a job steady and you're paying a rent of like $700 and then over the course of a decade, your rent goes up to $1,200 and you can't afford that, you're just going to leave that city. You're going to move. You're going to go to another city. I mean, this literally happened to me and my wife. We were living in Huntsville, Alabama. It was becoming a pretty expensive place to live. We had a kid. And so we moved back to our hometown, Alabama, because it was cheaper there. I mean, there are certain things that can happen to a very well-established person that make them homeless. So I'm not saying that that's not a part of this at all. I'm simply saying that it's more likely that drugs and mental illness play a much larger role here than just housing becoming too expensive for a family or an individual. So there's, I want to point, and we're going to put these in the show notes, there's a fascinating debate playing out on, on this very question. In 2021, a writer from California named San Quinones uh, basically attributed a huge part of this problem to a new form of meth that hit the streets. Yes, And that prompted a response from people who were in the sort of opposite camp as, as I've been describing. Nan Roman, who's the CEO of the National Alliance to End Homelessness, Ned uh, Reznikoff, from the UCSF uh, Benioff Homelessness and Housing Initiative, where they basically pushed back saying, and th there's one anecdote that stuck out to me where they said, well, West Virginia has the highest overdose race rate in the country, but one of the lowest rates of homelessness. Why? Because housing in West Virginia is so much cheaper. And so they at least are saying, all right, this has something to do with housing. My question though, Corey, though, on your front is like, well, there's a certain point where housing gets so expensive and wages aren't keeping up yeah. where it's going to push people out into the streets no matter where you live, especially if you don't have a job where you're moving to, right? Yeah, I mean, well, I think it just depends. I mean, if you're if you're living in, like, say, like an affordable housing situation and then that increases and you're already right there on that line of poverty, then yeah, absolutely, that can definitely push someone out in the streets. But obviously, there's a set of circumstances that could happen that could push anybody. Anybody in this country is just like a paycheck away from being homeless the, because of the fact that our wages have been so snagged for so many years. You know, my mom lives out in LA and so I'm there often and I think that that's an interesting case study on obviously there's a housing issue there to uh, your point, but 
Also, money doesn't seem to be entirely the answer. Um, and a lot of the policies that are being pushed as solutions are ultimately failing. And, you know, voters in L.A. approved a $1.5 billion tax increase to fight homelessness. Um, and they were promised 100,000 housing units over a decade. And in five years, 700 of the 10,000 that were promised to have been done by now have been completed. The city has been audited to figure out like where all the finances are going and how this is all working out. Audits from the city show that in some developments that taxpayers are funding, the city is spending as much as $837,000 per unit, which is more expensive than apartments in downtown Manhattan that are one bedrooms. And so I yep. think that a lot of the proposed solutions and a lot of the taxpayer money that's going to fight this ends up being uh, held up by bureaucratic red tape and all of the uh, you know consulting fees and the buddies of the government officials who get these contracts. Yep. And ultimately the money that we're allocating to fight these homeless cra- homelessness crises like in LA, which it's just absolutely horrific, it's otherworldly, is completely ineffective. It gets watered down by the time it actually gets to the people. And meanwhile, LA has been more relaxed on allowing people to uh, set up encampments. And then now all of a sudden they're coming in and taking away all their possessions and throwing them off public land. And so a lot of the policies have just been absolutely disastrous. I mean, I want to explore this idea because this this is all happening in what we can consider liberal cities, cities that vote Democrat, blue cities, whatever you want to call them. So one of the conservative arguments here is that these cities and their policies somehow lead to higher rates of homelessness. Is that in any way true? Yeah, and to add color to what you just said, you you could look at Seattle where the mayor ran on a platform essentially to solve this issue. And he's been basically taking on the encampments. Mayor Bowser in DC launched a program recently to clear um, homeless camps, Uh, LA, has a law banning camping in 54 locations. You can go across the country. Eric Adams has cracked down on the homelessness in the subways, like in New York. And you go one liberal city after another, you're starting to get to the point where they were super permissive at various points um, as there are certain progressive governments in place. And you know, you're seeing the politics shift. And in some cases, you're even seeing public referenda like in Austin, where yeah. the voters are getting fed up and taking matters into their own hands. I think where I, like to to Ricky's point on this, like, and and your question, which is like, what are what are progressive cities doing to make this problem worse or not solve them? Well, you know, San Francisco has seen a precipitous rise in homelessness recently, and they've also expanded their budget. So the Hoover Institute had a good short piece on this, and they put the budget in 2020, 2021 at 852 million for the Department of Homeless and Supportive Housing. And they said uh, with around 8,000 homeless, that comes to around $106,500 per homeless individual. Now, let's say those numbers are off by some order of magnitude. That's a lot of money. And when you start to think about solutions, right? Like how is it that you're spending more than what a lot of people make in a year, a year. Yeah. Yeah. on each homeless person and, and you're not so solving the problem. People. Like, why is it, right? And I agree with Ricky. There's just all sorts of problems with the way we go about this. Like, why isn't there design build, for example, in a lot of cities mm-hmm. for new housing? Why aren't we approving new density? We had a good episode with Connor Doherty from the New York Times about how the Bay Area and progressives have been standing in the way of new housing. And then you have the question of why not just give people the money? Vancouver had an experiment where they were giving out checks for Mm $7,500. And the data on this, Vox had a good write-up on this. They saw a decrease in dependency on drugs, tobacco, alcohol by 39% 
for the participants of this program. They moved into stable housing faster. They were more likely to save enough money to achieve financial security. This is an indictment on progressive governance because if it's true that just handing somebody money, like then that's $7,500, not $100,000, is more effective than all this bureaucracy, then to me, that's, that's an on-fire statistic. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that in more progressive cities, like the perfect can be the enemy of the good, where they have these really grand plans where we're going to allocate all this money and and make these beautiful facilities for people to live in. And there's an amazing case study that Reason Magazine highlighted of this guy named Elvis Summers, who's a formerly homeless musician that lives in LA. And he built these little tiny houses for people that many of which were housed on private property um, for homeless people with a solar panel and like a door that locks and just some comfort for people who have have been out on the streets for a really long time, a lot of veterans, a lot of people who really deserved and needed that. And on the same day that the city officials were passing this huge package to fund homelessness, they were also seizing those homes with people's medication and their clothes inside. And, you know, there are these, these smaller solutions that can make a measurable difference for, he just did this with like a couple hundred thousand dollars that he crowdfunded. And that can make a measurable difference in some people lives and a lot of the progressive policies end up saying like no we have a better plan but that's our our long-term plan down the line and and Mm -hmm. we'll have these ideal housing units like let someone live in their little little house if it if it's a door that keeps them comfortable yeah for sure and here's like here's what goes on as somebody used to coach these candidates who would run for office it's not that people wake up and they're like i want more homeless people but they do get up and say development is bad and they're against every development, no matter where it is, because it's the big, bad real estate industry. They're generally, especially white progressives, they they come from this corner of like homeowners who have a sort of stake in the neighborhood staying the way that it is, and any mm-hmm. change is bad. They also love unions who make the, the creation of this housing more expensive. They tend to love, like, they don't like to cut the size of programs. So the idea of like, like, let's say you were to cut some of these programs and give out cash assistance, that means less bureaucrats working with the government. They tend to resist shrinking the size of programs. And then all people in government have issues with procurement that I've seen, or at least in almost every state or city I've seen, whether it's a red or blue state, there are sort of favored contractors who make everything more expensive than it needs to be. And that all comes together to create this bias. And then then there's a, a bias against, and this is the big question I think we should probably end with, is like one of the big questions these cities are facing is do you arrest people? Do you clear them? And I, I don't mean arrest somebody for quote unquote being homeless, but often being homeless means you're breaking some kind of law. You're 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 you know camping out in some place where you're not allowed to be there. You know you're you you know going to the bathroom outside. You know sometimes you're you know asking people for money and there's and repeatedly, which is against the law in a lot of places. What do we think about whether people should be arrested for for doing some of these things? Not necessarily being homeless for, but for some of the activities that homeless people partake in. Well, New York City in general has, in many ways, through the DA, decriminalized so many things that would otherwise get you a lot of time in jail in other parts of the country. So I think I think what you just talked about, the set of things that homeless people have to do day to day just to survive should be on that list of things decriminalized. Uh, I certainly don't think we should be putting people in jail simply because of their situation. It's really complicated when you look at all these different factors. Yeah, I think the precedent also just morally is if you can't provide housing as an option um, through the local government, then it, you can't criminalize homelessness. 
Um, but then there's it's a really sticky situation that I don't have the answer to because then, you know, there are terrible conditions in a lot of these uh, homeless housing situations. Like you can't you can't stay unified with a partner or you can't bring your pets and your quality and of you're life concentrating is really addiction, suffering. Right. Yeah, That's, you're yeah. putting addicts next and to other addicts. Yeah. It's it's a really difficult situation, but um, we're seeing what happens when you completely permit it for a long period of time. For sure. Yeah. And so I want to flag as we kind of close out this a few areas where people, if they're looking for some hope, to say, who did this really well? I would say none of these are, are complete wins, but there's something to learn from a few of these case studies. One is the case study of Salt Lake City versus San Francisco. It's gotten a little murky over the past few years, but there was about a decade at which uh, Salt Lake City really invested in, in a different way of going about the homelessness crisis. And we're going to link to some articles about that, but also an update that shows that they at least recently failed to invest in continuing that progress. You also have New Orleans, you have Houston, and then you have international examples like Japan and Germany and then Canada, which I mentioned. We'll put all those in the show notes. People could read about those themselves. Mm -hmm. But I think like the, the short version of it is that there's every city has this, they're all claiming that they have a housing first policy it's a kind of a term of art yeah. in urban policy, but they're all implementing it differently. But the way, like the way that cities who've tackled this well have succeeded, is when they they consolidate all services under one government agency. They coordinate and they keep t track of data really effectively, and they build new housing, uh, and they cut the costs of government-run housing so that they they cut through the red tape of procurement and are finding innovative ways to create new housing stock. You put those things together and then you try to disaggregate it so that there aren't these big unsafe um, facilities for the homeless and that you give them enough mental health counselors. That mega set of policies seems to be among the most effective that we've seen out there. Well, hopefully um, these cities will Figure something out because this is an issue that is really affecting a lot of people, thousands of people in this country. When Jeff Zucker left CNN last month, it was widely reported that it was due to an undisclosed office romance with one of his top deputies. But new reporting since then and a recent expose in Rolling Stone say there was a lot more to it, including major breaches of journalistic ethics around the brothers Cuomo. I don't know where to start with this guy, but let's just unpack the stuff that was in the Rolling Stone article. I mean, you read that article. What were some of the biggest takeaways you had from it? Yeah, my sort of take on this is this is this is a very much a reflection of New York media culture. I think so much of the quote unquote mainstream media is based in New York. And as somebody who's been here most of my life, people go to the same parties. There's a revolving door. In this case, it was a you know a, a Cuomo PR person mm -hmm. who then goes to CNN, and there's just like everybody's talking to each other, everybody's scratching each other's backs. And there are two sets of problems here. There was a climate of sexual harassment and misconduct that Zucker presided over. And then there was the fact that there was a breach of ethics when it came to basically coordinating with Cuomo to have favorable coverage, give him the right to rebut stories, et cetera. And then there was just like, there's all sorts of quotes in here just about the bias towards sensationalism that CNN yeah, had. Yeah. You know, this is also the guy who presided over Trump at, at The Apprentice, NBC. Lauer at um, Today Show. Uh, and so, it, there's, it's just there's, it's it's well worth the read. We're obviously going to link to it. It just it it is in many ways a distillation of so many of the problems with the media today. Yeah, and I think this is actually an interesting 
continuation of what we saw with Andrew Cuomo's resignation over sexual assault claims when there was something that was kind of bigger looming behind him with the nursing home deaths and the potential that he obscured evidence about that. And, you know, the conversation got kind of obsessed with the Me Too aspect of it. And in the same way, weirdly, because they're connected, Zucker, then the conversation is around this affair that seems to have been probably pretty ongoing for a long period of time. It seems that he potentially was promoting her while it's alleged that they were having a relationship and they were living right above and below each other. And the whole thing's really weird. (laughs) But it also kind of misses the conversation about the fact that CNN's new standards and practices were violated and ultimately that impacts more people because that's the information that uh, millions of people are consuming and whether or not he's having an affair is a much more um, isolated issue. And so it's just a strange coincidence that the same pattern happened again. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Ricky. I I don't care if Zucker was having an affair with this woman. I care about the fact that during the hype of the pandemic, Zucker had on Andrew Cuomo and Chris Cuomo arguing about who talks to their mom more instead of talking about the thousands of people that were dying every day during that pandemic. I mean, they call themselves the most trusted name in news. And I don't know if I can trust them anymore. (laughs) Well, I think I'm resisting the temptation to, to go to whataboutism on this. And I think there's like a you know, prominent news network on the right that, you know, coordinates with one part, one national political party and certainly seemed to be in constant communication with Trump about his strategy and certainly had its fair share of sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. But Ricky, tell me why I shouldn't be talking about this. Like why, why shouldn't I change the subject here? Well, I feel like um, this at face value is pretty bad, Um, but also it's, it just goes to show that it's not a partisan issue that these news media outlets have um, tremendous concentrated control and that there's there are figures of power that are manipulative on both sides of this issue on on multiple networks. And it's more of a, a systemic problem within the media landscape that we have. Um, and I think that it also is playing a part in the, the turn to alternative media because these institutions have become so centralized and so powerful and so corrupt. Um, just across the aisle. I mean, I think the network, if I'm not mistaken, the network you're talking about rhymes with box. And <laughs> I I think that, yeah, obviously there's a lot of coordination between- I was talking about C-SPAN actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they just show everything the politicians say, they don't even yeah. edit it. Yeah. But um, there's a lot of coordination between that network and people like Trump and people on the conservative side of things, but they don't even try to hide it. I think it's clear at this point that they are on a particular side. Now they do have a few people there who try to, you know, bring some nuance to some of these conversations. And they did to their, a lot of their them credit. Left. Yeah, to their credit, they did launch an investigation and fire some people. Yeah, when the, when, when the harassment yeah. claims were coming out. Yeah. But I mean, CNN claims to be the most trusted name in news. I think it's different when you're calling yourself something and then you're definitely not living up to those journalistic ethics. To me, that's what makes it different. I mean, I'm not giving Box. Fox was, was fair and any, balanced, though, right? But that was a long time ago. Do they not we, use that anymore? I don't think they use that anymore. No, I think they do. But I also, Fox was founded with the intention of creating kind of a counterbalanced conservative voice in the media. And it's unfortunate that I think for a really long time, CNN was viewed as the, the kind of central uh, centrist media source that you could go to 
to when you didn't want the spin on one way or the other. And the, the allegations that are coming out um, in this situation kind of demonstrate that they've drifted from that path. And I think the conclusion really just is there isn't a mainstream media institution that's fully uh, reliable or, or not corrupt at this point somehow. And so yeah. what does that mean for how we consume media in the future going forward? You just have to go on YouTube and watch The Lost Debate for all of your news and information <laughs> needs. <laughs> Moving on, teen vaping. One of the weirder third rail issues in our country, but one that we're getting into today to try to shed some light on what the youths of the nation are up to. The youths. The youths, two youths. I'm going to start with you, Ricky, as our Gen Z ambassador. What is the latest going on on the vaping debate? Yes. So the CDC um, recently came out with a new kind of press release fact sheet on the state of tobacco use among middle school and high school students. Um, 2.06 million students report vaping, eight in 10 of them are using flavored tobacco of some sort. Um, but it's also worth noting as much as they are um, seem pretty excited to regulate that and to pull that back, that the rate of uh, vaping peaked at 27.5% um, and has since fallen to 11% in 2021 in the pandemic and whether kids are at home might have a factor at play here. But um, there's definitely a conversation to be had around whether it should be regulated, how it should be regulated. And um, recently we put into law that you have to be 21 to buy tobacco products, but it seems as though that's something that's being entirely circumvented. And I've seen myself that vaping is an enormous issue in my uh, generation. But the question really is, um, what role does the government play in that? Yeah. And, and Ricky, what do we know about like this data, like, you know, the collection, the fact that the, some of these trends happened during the pandemic? Do you think that as the pandemic's over, are we expecting these trends to continue or is it a reflection of the pandemic itself? Yeah, that the data I think it's really hard to say. Um, their methods in collecting the data have changed in the past few years and also kids are at home so that probably changes the factors immensely because they're with their parents and maybe there's different rules or they're in lockdown and they can't access things. And also they um, might not be vaping around their parents. Yeah, so they might actually yeah. be telling the truth, but they're yeah. just under more supervision than they otherwise yeah. would be. Um, but it seems like in the past, I mean, over the long term, uh, teen smoking has been going down and vaping was going up as smoking was going down. So it may have been replacing uh, smoking in the first place, which in the short term with what research we have so far, it seems like it's likely that um, that vaping is safer than smoking. And obviously you're not uh, exposing your lungs to the same trauma. From my anecdotal standpoint, I feel like there was a time in high school, it was rampant. It was banned but of course like kids were going to the bathroom i had friends that went to the bathroom like five times in one class because they were so addicted wow. it's also I, easier to vape than smoke yeah, a cigarette right? yeah like, and i also feel like it's so i can't imagine any of those same people picking up a cigarette had yeah. vaping not been an option so as much as vaping is used as um kind of a replacement for some adults potentially to yeah. break addiction i think that it also is introducing kids to tobacco in a way that you know our culture did kind of defeat smoking as like the cool thing in a lot of ways and it is coming back in the tobacco sense and the addiction and dependency sense what i find interesting about vaping is that there's so much science still pending on it yes yeah. it's such yeah, a absolutely. new phenomenon we really don't know the full effects that this is going to have on yeah, people's think how long it took us to even get to where we are with smoking data right? um yeah. it took yeah. a while it took yeah. a, it took a long it took i mean it took 
I mean, almost a century or centuries. I mean, it wasn't until like I think the 40s is when they first started figuring out that there was something wrong. It wasn't until like the 60s when the Surgeon General said, you know, hey, this is pretty bad for you. And I think it was 1971 when they actually banned, um, around 71 or 72 when they banned smoking cigarette, like cigarette co commercials. And people were still smoking. Like I remember my mom, my dad were both smoking in my face when I was a little kid. <laughs> and uh, and then like it was true of most of the parents in my neighborhood, yeah. which was I think, Ricky, it's hard for you to imagine like because you talk about yeah. like I can't imagine like people smoking. Like in my school, most of my friends smoke cigarettes. Yeah. And you know, it's Is it just inside odd. the school, like in the bathroom. Yeah, it's always there's a race to find a place to smoke. Like it's just <laughs> yeah. how it was. Like you, you know, whether it's in the bathroom or in the stairwell or sneaking a smoke outside. Like yeah. you know, my my local high school at a certain point, the school just gave up on trying to stop people from smoking and just would kind of just create certain safe zones. So like, you oh, know, really? between periods or something, you just go outside and smoke a cigarette because it just wasn't worth it for them to try to wow. stop it. See, I was in that in-between era where like cigarettes were super, we were, no, they were super dangerous. Well, they were always dangerous, but they were known to be super dangerous by the 2000s. So mm -hmm. it was like strictly banned in yeah. my high school to smoke, but people yeah. still did it and still snuck and did it. But vaping hadn't been introduced yet. So I was in that in-between zone. But the thing about vaping is that I think what's interesting is that one of the things that stops cigarette smoking in this country, and you kind of hinted on this a little bit, Ricky, is that we made it look less cool. Like we started showing yeah. commercials mm -hmm. that show what really happens to you when you smoke too many cigarettes. And uh, they actually took it out of a lot of movies and TV shows. Like now you automatically get an R rating if you smoke a cigarette in a oh, movie. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So like they, they made it where it's just less, you know, it looks less cool to kids. And I feel like with vaping, I don't think there's been an effort to make it look cool to kids. Like, yeah, there's I don't no see John Wayne vape <laughs> situation here. I don't see uh, vaping on on TV shows as, as, as something to look real cool. So maybe that there's like we've, we we kind of learned from cigarette smoking and said, you know, we're not going to push this on people the way we did cigarettes. I also think it's related. Ricky, you've done a lot of research on, on anxiety. It is a relaxing like mm -hmm. like the act of vaping. It seems yeah. to me like pretty relaxing. And there could be a tie between some of the research you've been doing and, and, and looking at on just rising levels of teen anxiety and the act of vaping yeah the rates of um kids with some sort of mental issues whether it's uh, anxiety or depression or something more severe that are uh, using tobacco products is much higher than the group that does not report those same issues um and i think but i think there was definitely a time where vaping was cool um yeah. in the younger age demographic but at the i don't know like I, I feel like that's kind of fading like you look like you're sucking a flash drive like it's just <laughs> not the coolest it's not the coolest thing but um yeah, I don't know. But then again, you know, there, there's issues with the flavoring and whether that means that it's kind of marketed towards kids because it's even more palatable and they enjoy that aspect as well. Um, and then, you know, when they've certain areas have banned flavoring altogether and now there's yeah. black markets and you can get them at like certain bodegas. And I know a lot of friends that know where to go. Yeah. And, you know, it's just... I, I don't know what the government uh, solution here is, but one interesting aspect is that we still don't know what a lot of the chemicals are in them. And I feel like, crazy. you know, we know what's in every single food product to your point that you made earlier. Um, and that feels like an answer that we should have from yes, these companies. Yeah. And, and we were trying to get to the bottom of this before the show, just like, how is it possible that there are th potentially thousands of chemicals in these mm -hmm. things that haven't been identified? And it seems to be that essentially their obligation is to disclose a chemical in the vaping product that has already been deemed by the FDA yeah. to be dangerous. And if there's if there's other chemicals in there, they don't have to disclose them if, if they haven't been absolutely deemed to be dangerous. That's at least my reading on it yep. so far. But but like you said, there's so much here that's puzzling. There was this, there's this also this question of does vaping help people get off cigarettes? And yeah. there was this sort of seminal study in 2019 from the New England Journal of Medicine that found that 
if you gave people uh, a few weeks of either e-cigarettes or other nic nicotine alternatives, like you say, like gum or something like that, and then you gave them a year and you came back to them in a year, 18% of the people who use the e-cigarettes uh, had quit smoking, mm -hmm. while 9.9% of the people on the nicotine replacements quit smoking. So that piece of the data would suggest that, well, e-cigarettes actually help people quit smoking, but there's, and there are actually articles that were making that claim that this was, oh, this actually shows that e-cigarettes are actually helpful. But there's another part of the data that's interesting, which is at the end of that year, remember these are people who've quit and you give people the opportunity to go back to whatever, way more of those people who had quote unquote quit uh, then started using e-cigarettes instead of uh, cigarettes and instead of like the people chewing gum. So essentially it will replace cigarettes, but also you're going to be much more likely to Go be addicted to, to the thing that got you off cigarettes yeah. in the first place. So I don't know where to come out on that other than I don't want kids doing it. I don't even want adults doing it, but there's a very limited amount of stuff you could do to stop adults from doing things. And, you know, and like people should be able to take certain risks on their own. But it's so murky. That's uh, that's where I come out. Yeah, it's so murky. Almost any conclusion that you go into this debate with, you can find the data to support in the end. The studies are pretty inconclusive. There, a lot of them are conflicting with one another. And I think you know the question really comes down to: Is there a lesser of two evils situation here, where teen smoking rates are going down and teen vaping rates are going up? And is that a better situation? It's still not a good situation. I don't know the answer. Well, yeah. teen vaping rates have been falling since during the pandemic. And, you know, maybe that has something to do with them banning them for people under 21. Maybe it has something to do with, like you said, people with parents. But hopefully kids don't start vaping because it sounds like we just don't know what's in it. And, you know, obviously you don't want to put your health at an unnecessary risk. A little tired today. Yeah, there's a, a, lot of, a lot of stuff to go through. A lot of stuff to go through. But I'm also tired because I lost an hour of sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I was um, wondering where you're going with that. Well, I'm just, I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering. You know, we do this every, every, you know, twice a year. We we change the clocks. We go back. We go forth. We go back and forth. And now there are a lot of people proposing bills. I think there are several states. I know my home state of Alabama is one of them. Georgia is one of them, Louisiana. They're proposing bills to basically make daylight savings time permanent. To say we don't fall back anymore, we just spring forward and we never fall back. But Congress only has the um, they, only Congress can make it permanent. And right now, states can ban daylight savings time. Like Arizona doesn't adhere to daylight savings time. There's a single county in like Indiana that doesn't adhere to it. How they deal with all the other counties around them, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but what do we think about that? I mean, because like there's this argument for it and this argument against it. So I mean, I, I want to go even further. Why do we have time zones? Why like why is it like why can't I just call somebody in London and, and set up a meeting and be like, we're going to meet at 12 and 12 means different things to each of us. They may be asleep at 12 and I'm not, but at least like we're using the same number. You realize the Wait. sun doesn't hit light at the same part of the earth. No, but I'm just saying, why not just use the same number? Not saying like, like I obviously they're, they're, I can't change the sun, but why, why do we have a different number? Like, like, you know, because no. like we associate why do we even why don't we use this military time then why don't we just if we all Great. use military time 100%. then that would make that a lot yeah. easier yeah man. yeah, yeah. Like, let's just have one unit of time and like if you're in if i'm trying to coordinate a meeting with somebody in la i'm like all right we're gonna meet at nine and he could be like well we're asleep at nine and i'll be like all right well 
or, and then you, you just kind of know that about each other. Because either way, you have to do the math in your head. You know? It's not very difficult I, math, Robbie. Yeah. I mean, I think you've changed the nature of this conversation. I was wondering, do we want permanent <laughs> daylight savings time or do we want to get rid of daylight savings time? Yeah, yeah. I'm for all of the standardization. So like let's yeah I'm, I'm with still you. not answering no I'm the same I'm still I'm still I I'm for getting rid of daylight savings time. okay so you answer. want yeah, yeah. no daylight savings time yeah, yeah. so you do understand that that will affect seasonal affective disorder because there will be less light in the in the evening uh well but couldn't we do it the other way couldn't we, we have just, permanent daylight savings time yeah. yeah yeah couldn't we just have it like so that like yeah the other way around cool yeah, permanent daylight savings yeah. time yeah that's All right, what good I'm negotiation All right, cool yeah, yeah I've convinced you of it okay, we could just abolish time at this point with this conversation it's pretty arbitrary I don't know but I woke up at 6 30 today so I'm I'm with you Wait, it reminds me of, this is gonna get cut but uh it reminds me of the Roman Empire like things were so chaotic uh as uh, Julius Caesar was taking power that like people couldn't keep track of time anymore because there was so much corruption. He actually helped clean it up. The Julian calendar. Yeah. yeah. I still use the Julian calendar. There you go. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's still January. Maybe. If he, if this was a worldwide empire that he was presiding over, we wouldn't have different time zones. It's the ice of March. So it's there interesting you that you bring up Julius Caesar. Uh, we go. got a couple of updates here uh, at the end of the show. Crypto, there's some new things happening with crypto, correct, Ravi? Yeah, I just wanted to layer in some additional data. And I know Ricky has an update too, just about what's been going on in Russia. We talked about like this sense that there was a use case for cryptocurrencies happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that potentially people in Russia would be converting their currency holdings to cryptocurrency. And we were asking, like, do we have any evidence to think that that's true? And so there is some data, and this is cited in The Economist, and we'll certainly link to this. Um, they said that trading volumes in the ruble Bitcoin currency pair on Binance, which is the biggest crypto exchange by volume, have climbed to about 10 times their normal level from about 50 Bitcoins worth per day to 500. Uh, so essentially we're seeing increased activity in Russia in the crypto exchanges. And this article also goes in to talk about, well, what's going on here? And claims that maybe people are like, there's a lot of evidence to say that some people are converting their currency to Bitcoin, but that doesn't mean that they're able to evade sanctions because in many ways, these crypto exchanges are actually more transparent than a lot of other ways to move money. Um, and so it'll be really hard to then convert that Bitcoin to other currencies other than the ruble. Um, and they also say that there's evidence to suggest that the Ukrainians are benefiting more from this because there was, you know, certain situations like on February 26th, the official Ukrainian account published uh, digital wallet addresses to collect funds. Um, and nearly $100 million worth of tokens have since been donated. And much of this has been spent on things like bulletproof vests, night vision goggles, et cetera. And that's confirmed by the Deputy Minister for Digital Transformation in Ukraine. And so the article goes to say, hey, maybe this is actually better for the Ukrainians than for Russians. Yeah. And then on the domestic front, in terms of updates, um, last week, Biden rolled out a set of um, new kind of goals for regulating crypto, which the market or at first uh, reacted very positively to because I think there were some concerns that there might be a move to ban it altogether. But um, those gains have been wiped out because I think um, having the government involved in crypto or involved in regulating it does kind of defeat the purpose of it. Um, so the 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 market has evened out, but it seems like what Biden is trying to do is, quote, responsible innovation and making sure that the government is overseeing what's happening in this burgeoning industry. Um, he says that he is engaged extensively with the industry before rolling out these plans, and it's just plans. They're not 
really any decisive decisions that he's making, but he's looking into investor protection, financial stability, illicit finance, U.S. competitiveness, equity and inclusion, and privacy and security, and also the climate. So um, I think ultimately, at first it was a good thing for crypto. I don't think it's going to be ultimately because, you know, we'd hope that it kind of extends beyond those governmental reaches in the example that you just provided. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, Maybe I'll buy the dip, maybe not. We'll we'll see. I'll have to look and see where the market's standing at. All right. Well, we thank you for watching this extraordinarily long episode of Lost Debate. If you're still with us, then you're the real champion. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review and subscribe. We'll see you guys next time.